This is the 966, episode 79. Mr. Richard Wilson, back from Saudi Arabia. Welcome back, sir. Nice to see you. Well, thank you. Great trip. Well, you you know, you, you, you were there twice in February, is that right? Twice in, uh, once in February and once in March. We didn't get to see each other. We overlapped by a few days, but I think you were in Al Ola and Jeddah. <laughs> so. You sent me a picture of people. I just saw them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, a very special edition this week because a lot happened when we got onto the plane and went to Saudi Arabia this week. Wouldn't call this an emergency pod as some in the biz call this, but a very special edition of the 966. A duo of stories here. We could talk a little bit about it before we tee up our guests. Um, but we do have three guests this week, uh, just like some of the best corporations in the world, Richard, will be outsourcing some of the expert input to the best and brightest. Um, we've got... Fahad Nazar from the Royal Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, Dr. John Alterman from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Dr. Aziz Al-Ghashayan, a expert on Saudi-Israeli relations and the region as well. Just a good one. Richard, uh, we'll be talking about the Iran-Saudi deal signed that was brokered by China, a little bit about the U.S.-Saudi commercial deals over the last week, including the deal with Boeing and the new airline Riyadh Air. This is what I love about the 966. You know, there's the really significant, meaningful news coming out of Saudi Arabia, some very active diplomacy, some interesting foreign policy choices, obviously, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, are meaningful to the United States and to people who are interested in the relationship, obviously most meaningful to Saudi Arabia. So the flexibility and the network and the opportunity to bring people together who we think are really smart, that's one of the great things about this, this program. Yeah, and this is a really cool episode, Richard, because we have two Saudi voices out of three sort of contributing to the dialogue about what has happened. And then one of the most expert voices in the Middle East in Washington, Dr. John Alterman. So we've kind of got a really good panel, so to speak, here on this episode. And it was really cool to sort of come back from a week of travel off and get this out because this is just such an important moment. And yeah, Richard, uh, you really, you kind of hit it on the head. We started this thing at exactly the right time. Timing is everything in life. And we started it right as things were really heating up with Saudi Arabia. So this is just such a cool episode. We hope you guys enjoy it. Three conversations on the recent deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran and uh, brokered by China, as we mentioned, and just sort of trying to dissect some of that. So, um, yeah, we hope you guys enjoy it. We'll start off first with uh, Fahad Nazar from the Royal Embassy in Saudi Arabia. We are speaking now with Fahad Nazar, who is spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Fahad was one of our first guests on the 966 back in 2021, and he was previously a contributor to publications like the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, Arab News, and even, of course, our website, sustg.com. Nowadays, as spokesperson for the embassy, he is quoted in too many publications to name here, <laughs> and in the last year has had TV hits on CNN, MSNBC, PBS, and others. Fahad, welcome back. Nice to see you. It's good to be with you again, Lucian, as always. It is always good to be with you. And it seems doesn't seem that long. 2021, really, no, to be time honest. time flies. Yeah. I know. Yeah, although and, a lot uh, has happened uh, between 2021 and now, that's for sure. Certainly. <laughs> in the yep. Yeah. Well, the uh, thanks to you and other tremendous guests, the 966 has really grown. And mm -hmm. we, we're uh, we're reaching a, 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 a large audience. So this is a lot of fun. And this is a this is sort of a a little departure from our normal episode because we wanted to get some commentary on this big news. Um, and so, for context, Fahad and, and our and our uh, and our listeners, just 
as, as background. So on March 10th, as, as we all know, and you know very well, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and China announced a joint trilateral statement that an agreement had been reached between Saudi Arabia and Iran to, quote, resume diplomatic relations and reopen their embassies and missions within a period not exceeding two months, unquote. And a couple key points in this agreement, uh, it included affirmation uh, on all parties of the respect for the sovereignty of states, not interference in international affairs of states. And they also agreed, and Fahad, you know, as a student of, of, you know, relations in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy, they also agreed to implement a security cooperation agreement signed between them in April 2001, and the general agreement for cooperation in the fields of economy, trade, investment, technology, science, culture, sports, and youth signed in May 1998. Um, <clears throat> But sort of a, a broad statement. Uh, can you provide you know, your perspective on this agreement? What should we make of this agreement? Um, you know, we're obviously looking at it from a U.S. Saudi perspective, but we on the 966 are extremely interested in, in the Saudi take and the Saudi uh, perspective on these things. Uh, it's a momentous uh, agreement. What is what is your sense of, of how this came about and what it means? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on your um podcast again, uh, Richard, and I uh, look forward to our conversation. So uh, let me start by widening the lens a little bit. So uh, as you know very well, it's my understanding that you were just in the kingdom very recently, so you know this better than most. Saudi Arabia is undergoing an amazing transformation that we call Vision 2030. With the vision, and its broad objectives are the empowerment of every segment in society, the development of every sector in the economy. And in many ways, we're also redefining what it means to uh, deliver government services. So all as all of these changes are taking place, as we're implementing the various elements of Vision 2030, a lot of things have changed. Obviously, like I said, you were in the kingdom, it sounds like last week. So the kingdom feels and looks very different. A lot of our laws have changed. A lot of our regulations have changed. A lot, of a lot of our institutions have changed. However, having said that, what has remained remarkably consistent going back decades is our foreign policy. Saudi Arabia adheres to strictly to the norms and conventions of the international community, and that includes respecting state sovereignty. It includes um, opposing militant non-state actors, promoting collective solutions to uh, some of the challenges that the international community faces, many of which are, in fact, uh, global in nature. It also includes um, not interfering in the affairs of uh, our neighbors. And we're also strong believers in the power and efficacy of constructive dialogue and diplomacy. So based on these pillars, we, really going back two years at this point, have had several rounds of conversations of uh, dialogue with uh, Iranian officials. Some of it was conducted, obviously, with the uh, with the help of some of our neighbors, including Iraq and, and uh, Oman. But um, just a couple of weeks ago, on March 10th, to be exact, we had an announcement that included Saudi Arabia, Iran, and uh, the People's Republic of China. The, we had several days of uh, talks um, under the auspices of uh, President Xi. And based on those talks, we uh, released a statement. And as you said, there are 
statement said that we will be restoring diplomatic relations with Iran and opening our embassies in about uh, two months. And uh, that we will also implement a couple of agreements that uh, go back a couple of decades at this point. So uh, we're hopeful that this represents uh, a new chapter in uh, our relations uh, with Iran going forward. I like how you say take back a take a broader lens. Uh, what I hear you saying is uh, this Vision 2030 project is obviously is transforming Saudi Arabia is moving into new directions. I really like your uh, I really like your reference to you know change ways of delivering government services, which essentially governance, which is 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 a high priority I think as part of the Vision 2030. Sure. Um, you know, the, from the in the Western media, let's say U.S., they take a look at this, and many commentators sort of see this as a zero-sum game. <clears throat> I don't think Lucian or I really feel like that's the case, and some of the brighter people that we follow, you know, haven't really uh, felt like that was the case. But it is curious, as you know, that you know uh, you had uh, meetings and interaction communications with Iran. Uh, under the auspices of Iraq and Oman, but when it came to sort of take it over the goal line, as it were, um, China is the one who will be, it'll be under the auspices of China. Is there any, was that, was there intention behind that? Was that circumstance? What, what was the, what was that, what led to that result? So I think all the rounds of conversations that we've had were important and uh, played a role in bringing us to uh, to this moment. Having said that, I'm glad that you used the uh, the expression uh, zero-sum game because, uh, like yourself, I've come across many articles and commentary since the announcement was made, but I could not agree with you more. Saudi Arabia's foreign policy is not conducted through, through that prism. Uh, we do not conduct our foreign policies through that zero-sum game prison, a prism in the sense that if we restore relations with with a country or if we strengthen relations with another country, those measures are not coming at the expense of relations with other countries. We believe that, and again, because of the fact that we adhere strictly to the norms of the international community, that we have had and continue to enjoy good, if not excellent relations with countries around the world, with the overwhelming majority of countries around the world, I might add. And then China happens to be one of these nations that we have Good relations with uh, China, as you know, is our biggest trading partner. It is also one of the biggest export uh, markets for our crude. Um, there's significant Chinese investments in Saudi Arabia and significant Saudi investments in China. So it makes perfect sense, certainly for those reasons, uh, but also for, for other reasons for Saudi Arabia to strengthen this relationship. But again, I, I cannot stress this enough that as we strengthen relations with uh, countries like China or others in the region or elsewhere, these are not coming at the expense of our longstanding relationships with the United States and some of other allies. Um, taking a step back, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you a hypothetical, and all responsible uh, interlocutors and spokespeople never answer a hypothetical. Uh, but... That's very true. <laughs> well stated. <laughs> the, the, uh, this is... You know, over the last 18 months, it's something we talk about in the 966 regularly. 
uh, and on segments we had specifically devoted this, there's been an effort on the part of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in particular, but the, the Saudi political establishment and, and, and brain trust, as it were, uh, to deconflict um, uh, relationships in the region that may have been problematic or they've been a little contentious, you know, Qatar, Turkey, even Iraq, you know, the relationship with Iraq is being rebuilt in a significant way that it hasn't seen in 20 years. Um, and I guess you can see this as, as, as part of it. Here's the hypothetical. Mm-hmm. What, what are the expectations of a relationship with Iran under this new format, under this new, uh, with renewed diplomatic relations? And again, they, they, they were, had diplomatic relations in 2016, but what are the expectations? And, and again, I'll go back to, I'll go back to Western media and U.S. in particular because everyone jumps immediately to Yemen, mm-hmm. you know. And and uh, as is often the case, people get way out ahead of themselves and feel like, oh, this will resolve the Yemen issue. But what I don't want to put ideas in, you know, what what hopes what's what does Saudi Arabia hope to come from this? Right. So that's a great question, and. Um... It's not really a hypothetical. So since you mentioned Yemen specifically, let me just uh, reiterate what the kingdom is doing there. And and Saudi Arabia really is doing everything that it can to restore peace and stability to Yemen. It has been supportive of the internationally recognized government of Yemen going back to the beginning of this conflict, going back to 2014. It is working very closely with the United Nations and its envoy to find a political resolution. It is working very closely with the U.S. envoy to find a political resolution to this conflict. In addition to that, uh, as you probably know, Saudi Arabia is the top provider of humanitarian assistance to Yemen going back since the beginning of the conflict. I believe the latest figure is upwards of $18 billion, and that's billion with a B, and this support has been in the form of uh, food, medicine, support to internally displaced people, support to the central bank. We have also uh, the um, development program that is um, supported by Saudi Arabia in Yemen under the King Salman uh, Center for Humanitarian Assistance. That has already is, in some ways, helping Yemen along uh, recover along its recovery from uh, from this conflict. So they have built schools and hospitals and um, uh, power stations, or water treatment plants among uh, among other institutions. So I think we're doing everything in that regard. Now going back to your original hypothetical hypothetical question. Uh, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, like I said, we don't think that it's a big gasp. For, uh, for us to, uh, or rather for our neighbors, to adhere to the same norms that we have adhered to for decades. And I think that if we do that, then the world becomes a, a, a safer, more prosperous place. And, you know, going back to Vision 2030, which is what I started this conversation with, in many ways, obviously, it's very much focused on transforming Saudi Arabia's economy and uh, society. But some of our ambitions go a little beyond that. So, for instance, we want to transform Saudi Arabia to become a logistics hub. We want to transform Saudi Arabia to become a tourist, a global tourist destination. We be, we want to become a global leader on climate action and mitigating the impact of climate change. So for all of these objectives to go as planned, we need peace, prosperity, and stability in the region. 
And uh, again, going forward, we're hoping that uh, Iran can uh, can become a force for uh, peace and stability in the region and beyond. Um, and it is it is fascinating. You started with it, and now you've just circled back to it, and that is preservation protection of the Vision Twenty Thirty project. And it, it, it sounds like that's uh, the motivating factor, perhaps between a lot of what's driving, um, you know, Saudi efforts to to calm the region. Um, one of the things that uh, worries Saudi Arabia is there are some tertiary, you know, that you had the primary uh, participants in this agreement, Saudi Arabia, Iran, China. You had significant, uh, significant impact, according to some people, with the U.S. I'm not so sure about that. But another party to this that you know watching closely is Israel, and uh, they have obviously have they have a different relationship with Iran and and they see things differently. Um, how, does this impact any way in any way going forward? You you think your uh, future interactions with Israel? And I'm not saying that they're coming. I'm just saying that you know Saudi Arabia is a little more open to to uh, commercial or tourist interaction with. Israel, any bigger questions? Hmm. So that's more of a hypo hypothetical than your previous uh, question. <laughs> it, 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 so, uh, I would say I would say much more, Fahad. <laughs> yes, uh, but let me do. I'd be remiss if I did not address just the state of Saudi-U.S. relations, and I think it's important, just given the amount of articles and commentaries that have been produced and published over the past couple of weeks. Uh, and again, I can't stress this enough. The relationship with the United States is longstanding. It is multidimensional. It has continued to grow and to strengthen going back now eight decades under both Republican and Democratic administrations. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, as we strengthen some relations with our neighbors in the region and beyond, this is not hampering our uh, relationship with the United States in any way. I mean, if nothing else, see, obviously you must have seen the uh, announcement by Boeing that um, it has uh, agreed, or rather Saudi Arabia and Boeing agreed on a, on a major deal to purchase well over 100 commercial jets to uh, for both the Saudi flagship airline, but also the new Riyadh airline that was just announced by uh, His Royal Highness not long ago. So that should serve, I think that's a, should serve as a reminder about the uh, the importance and the multi-dimensional nature of this relationship and and again this is according to the US government's own estimates even before this uh, deal was uh, was agreed to the trade the annual trade between Saudi Arabia and the United States in goods and services supports 165,000 American jobs this deal alone is expected to support over 100,000 jobs in the United States going back uh, continuing for several years. So this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And uh, even though like any relationship, not just between nations, but frankly, between people, it's uh, bound to go to go through ups and down. And uh, I think it's normal and perhaps even healthy. We're certainly expected to have a slight uh, difference of opinion over certain subjects, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Saudi Arabia and the United States are in broad alignment when it comes to uh, you know some of the more the major challenges that we face in the region and beyond. That was a really deft turn, Fahad. I like that because then you you reference logistics and that's a thirty-seven billion dollar deal. 
Mm-hmm. You know that uh, that Riyadh Air, you know, committing thirty nine aircraft, and and Saudia commit, committing to thirty nine Boeing, you know, wide bodies. Uh, yeah, an extraordinary agreement. Um, you know, again, announced not 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 long after the announcement of the uh, agreement with China, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Now, we don't have a lot of your time, so now I'll, I'll, I'm going to say something, and you can. Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down or forget it, Richard. <laughs> it appears to me, um, and I think Lucian and I talk a lot about this on the show and we talk about it with each other. Uh, you know, we reached a, a, a low point at the, you know, in the 2020 presidential campaign when when President current President Biden referred to, uh, you know, use the term pariah. We we had uh, so let's let's not use that as a touchstone, but let's use the visit to Saudi Arabia this summer. President Biden visited and met with Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and and others. It appears to me that the relationship is in a better spot now than it was then. Now, you and I both know, we all know on this podcast that there's significant infrastructure in the relationship in terms of ongoing cooperative ventures, in terms of you know private sector defense, intelligence, any number of things that bind and are ongoing, no matter what the political, you know, froth is. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it appears to me that that uh, the two countries are in a better place at the political level. And that's just my observation. Yeah, now you can say, I want no part of that. <laughs> you can say, well, maybe not. <laughs> no, I mean, what I will say is that I that I agree with everything that you said in, in the sense that you know, this is a longstanding relationship that our co- cooperation on multi multiple dimensions, as as you uh, mentioned, has been moving. Regardless, if if whether we we did have some you know slight uh, difference of opinion over political issues. So, for for instance, the economic uh, aspect of the relationship that has continued to to broaden and to deepen, going back decades. Our military and security cooperation has been steady and consistent going back decades. So, you know, it's. I think it's important to uh, to remember that Saudi Arabia and the United States have fought two wars side by side, uh, not just one. One going back to 1990, when we expelled Saddam Hussein's troops from uh, Kuwait, and more recently going back to 2014, when again our troops fought side by side to expel the terrorist group ISIS from um, Iraq and, and Syria. Uh, at the same time, there's an important people-to-people dimension to this relationship that is al- also sometimes overlooked. So as we speak, there's an estimated 70,000 Americans living and working in Saudi Arabia. There's an estimated 30,000, if not if not more, Saudis studying and uh, living in the United States. And they, in many ways, also... Uh, this people-to-people dimension adds depth to uh, this relationship. I think it has been uh, one of the key pillars and has been one of the main factors why it has endured for as long as it has. So, um, you know, it was a long answer, obviously, but I, I feel very good about the relationship. I think it's on solid footing and we look forward to it continuing, not just continuing, but expanding. And, and since you mentioned President Biden's visit, in many ways that visit reinforced the pillars of the relationship that have sustained it going back 80 years, but it also outlined the contours of the relationship going forward. So as you know, now this 
relationship has broadened to include things like cybersecurity, food security, space exploration. Some of these um, climate change, some of these new challenges that both our countries face. And uh, Lucian can well certainly chime in here. He's been he's been spending a lot of time in Saudi and the region. Um, yes, we're yeah. going to have we're, we're going to have uh, James Golson on in a in a couple episodes. He's uh, the senior commercial officer with the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, and had a chance to visit with him out there, as well as members of the AmCham KSA. There seems to be really good energy on the private sector side. Yeah, and as I don't know if I mentioned this during my uh, previous appearance, but I've had the pleasure of attending FII a couple of years, which is a future investment initiative conference that happens in Riyadh in the fall every year. And I was there last two years ago, and there were literally thousands of business leaders from all over the world, including people representing you know dozens and dozens of, if not hundreds, of American companies. So I think it's become very clear to me, and I visit the kingdom pretty often. I was just there last week, and it's very clear to me that there's a lot of interest, not just from the business community in the United States or more broadly internationally, in what's happening in uh, Saudi Arabia. I think people realize that, for the business community for sure, they realize that there's maybe more opportunities in Saudi Arabia now than anywhere else in the world. But I think beyond the business community, I think Americans certainly in general uh, do seem very much interested in what's happening in the kingdom. They realize that there's something happening and more and more of them are not only just engaging with us here at the embassy, but more and more of them are actually going through the effort and taking the time to go and visit Saudi Arabia and to see things on the ground, to speak to our youth who are leading this amazing transformation. So I think we're. Uh, this is a very exciting time in Saudi Arabia, and uh, you know this relationship with the United States will uh, will you know it's it's endured for for many compelling reasons. Fahad, we've already taken up a little bit too much of your time, but if I could ask you just one question, a quick answer: Are you um, uh, Michael Ratney is the new U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, so he would sort of be HRH Princess Rima's counterpart. Do you know him personally, or is there? sort of uh, excitement for that. We know things move slowly through Congress, but it looks like that finally got through. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. No, I mean, obviously it's important to have an ambassador. And, um, you know, the um, uh, Martina Strong uh, was has been there and was previously there in the kingdom and she was engaging with uh, uh, her counterparts. But, um, you know, like I said, it's important to have an ambassador. Our ambassador here is very much engaged. She travels all across the country. She maintains a an ongoing dialogue with the with the administration, but also with the leadership on Congress in Congress on both sides of the aisle. So uh, obviously, it's uh, good to have as many diplomats as possible. We are huge fans of her here on the nine six six Fahad Nazar, who is spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That was our conversation with Fahad Nazar from the Royal Embassy in Saudi Arabia. Richard, that was awesome. Yeah, he really provides uh, nice context, and I didn't realize we hadn't spoken with him since 2021, and so we'll have to we'll have to make that a more regular thing. If Saudi Arabia keeps doing these very interesting diplomatic uh, taking these very interesting diplomatic steps, there'll be plenty of reasons to talk with Fahad. But he really he really brings his A game every time, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really informative. Let's move on now to our conversation with Dr. John Alterman from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And also, I should note, a host of the Babel podcast, which is just 
second best in the space after us, <laughs> but it's just fantastic. He's great. The pleasure is always on this side of the table, Richard, when we have the privilege of speaking, as we are now with Dr. John Alterman from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. John is host of the unrivaled podcast by CSIS called Babel Translating the Middle East, which is on my weekly must-listen-to list, and it's just very well done. John, thank you for coming back on the program this week, and good to see you. Great to see you, Lucien. Welcome back. Thank you. John, thanks so much. I can't ditto with what Lucian. It's like uh, we, we get your insightful analysis and dose of good humor. And by the way, since, you know, it is March Madness and your Princeton Tigers took out, uh, you know, Arizona yesterday. Congratulations. My bro. Thank you. It, uh, it brought an even bigger smile to my face than I thought it would. <laughs> you know, somebody who does the Middle East, you're used to things that, that sort of look like they might happen and then they seem really improbable. And then just sometimes they happen. And that was my Middle East moment yesterday. It was great. John, you know better than, than most. This caught most everybody by surprise. It's been top of the news. In the past week, you've been quoted and interviewed in the LA Times, Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Reuters, and others. Can you tell us what we should make of this agreement? Yeah, I mean, it, it feels to me like this is part of a broader Saudi strategy to reorient the relationship with the United States principally. And to me, this is the response to the kerfuffle we had in October when Saudi Arabia decided to to lead OPEC to cut oil production, the White House was upset. They said this was political. They said they were caught by surprise. In fact, it very much seemed that they were caught by surprise. The Saudis said, we're sovereign. We don't have to tip you off. You're not an OPEC member. It sort of, and, and the White House said there will be consequences. And I think the Saudis pulled back and they said, well, let's think about where we're going. We were trying to have a different kind of relationship with the Biden administration. And we had this July meeting and we, we set a broad agenda, but there still is a way in which the Biden administration treats us not with respect, as if we, we have to toe the line, as if we don't have our own sovereignty. And, and so I think the Saudi government seems to have said, OK, what are we going to do here to establish that we're an independent country? We have agency over our relations. We are partners with the United States. The United States remains our most important partner, but we're not subordinate to the United States. And so it felt to me like there was a week of diplomacy. It started with a leak in the New York Times, a leak in the Wall Street Journal saying that Saudi Arabia is open and is exploring bilateral relations with Israel. And then you had the, the announcement that they had struck an agreement with Chinese mediation to resume diplomatic relations with Iran. Then they're starting a new airline. And by the way, they're buying almost 80, maybe more than 80 Boeing Dreamliners. Not because the White House said, you do this and you do this and we do this. And, and it's not out of that negotiation. It's Saudi Arabia saying, and by the way, we're starting our line. We think the Dreamliners are the best planes who are buying billions of dollars worth of American planes. And it seemed to me that the whole arc of the week was about Saudi Arabia saying, look, we are serious about 
our relations with the United States, we're serious about our regional relations, we're serious about our relations with China, and we're going to be the ones steering the ship. We're the ones in control of our destiny. I think realistically, you have to have pretty limited aspirations for exactly how far they'll get, how quickly with Iran. After all, having diplomatic relations is kind of a low bar. Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia has had diplomatic relations with Iran before. It, it hasn't prevented a lot of tensions in the relationship. And I've seen, we've all seen that relationship go up and down and there have been accusations. <clears throat> um, in fact, not only have been there accusations of Iran trying to subvert Saudi Arabia, but the reason that they were split was because Saudi Arabia executed a number of Shia leaders who they believed were agents of Iran or in the thrall of Iran or something else in Eastern province. And that provoked the riot in Iran against the Saudi embassy. And that provoked a split in the relationship. So as I said, diplomatic relations didn't prevent Saudi Arabia from feeling Iran was trying to, to foment insurrection in the Eastern province. So I think diplomatic relations is a, an important starting point. There are issues about Iranian support for the Houthis in Yemen who have shelled different parts of Saudi Arabia. Um, there are, and, and the Iranians have said, we're not supporting the Houthis. Apparently Ali Shamkhani uh, admitted as part of this agreement that in fact they were supporting the Houthis. Uh, there are issues in Iraq, there are issues in Lebanon, there are issues of Iranian support for the government of Syria. I mean, there are any number of issues that of Saudi concern with Iranian behavior. This doesn't change any of those, but it makes them subject to negotiation. I think this is a process that the Biden administration had been trying to, to support for several years. It started um, with Prime Minister Kazemi of Iraq. He left office in October. There were some meetings in Oman. I think that it was the, the Chinese put together the final deal, but this is a process where the Iranians and the Saudis were exploring, is there a way to get to a better place? I think we are in a slightly better place, but I'd be cautious in saying we're in a much better place and Saudi Arabia is still going to be relying on American security guarantees. Can China make this happen? Will they actually, you know, step in if this thing goes off the tracks a little bit? They haven't yet, right? The Chinese role, whether it's in the P5 plus one or other kind of multilateral agreements where the Chinese have been involved, the Chinese haven't been willing to hold parties to account. The only time the Chinese have held parties to account is when they've owed money to China. But in terms of they're gonna back up the Saudis by squeezing the Iranians to, to live up to their obligations, I'm not sure that Chinese do that. The Chinese have a lot of vocabulary about cooperation and win-win and, and all those kinds of things. But when it comes time to holding parties to their obligations, I think that's not a well-developed Chinese reflex. I think the likelihood, if you look at Iranian behavior, 
is that the Iranians are going to test the limits. Uh, and China will be hard pressed to push back in a sharp way. When I've, what I've seen China do, and they've done it with the Iranians a lot, is they sort of delay things. They'll make all the right language, but things won't really come through. The agreements won't really come, that they, they'll be signed but not implemented, something like that. And the Chinese will sort of delay. And I think when you're dealing with some of the things the Iranians are doing, I wonder whether that Chinese enforcement is enough. You know, General Carrillo, the, the CENTCOM commander, talked about, I think there were five or six interdictions of Iranian weapons uh, going to the Houthis in the last 90 days. So, I mean, there's, there are real things happening and the diplomatic platitudes only get you so far. I'm not sure the Chinese are practiced at holding folks to account. I'm not sure they have the tools. I'm not sure they're interested in holding people to account. The Chinese want to be there for the, the congratulations. They want to be there for the images of harmony. But when it comes to security issues, and particularly when it comes to the Iranians' interest in using asymmetrical tools and using deniable tools and using all the things that the Iranians have frankly developed over 40 years to more than 40 years to make up for the fact that they feel weaker than most of the parties around them. I think the Chinese are going to have quite a burden on their hands to make this stick. This now certainly I think one of the other interesting things that's going on, it doesn't require the Chinese to do much, is my understanding is, is both the Saudis and the Emiratis have talked about potential investments in Iran, potential economic engagement with Iran. And I think that's another really interesting thing. If the U.S. policy is don't engage with Iran and we're going to squeeze Iran economically, and the policy of our Gulf partners who we're working to defend is to engage more with Iran and to try to create economic incentives for the Iranians to change their behavior. I wonder how that breaks. I think that could be a very interesting phenomenon in sort of three, six, nine months if this seems to be moving and the Iranian strategy of we're going to reduce tensions with the neighbors, we're going to engage more with the neighbors, the neighbors' strategy is we're going to keep the Iranians from attacking us by giving them incentives. What does that do to an American non-proliferation strategy, which is we're isolating Iran and making the economy hurt to try to get them to pull away from enrichment. Yeah, that comment was interesting in light of the you know strict sanctions on Saudi Arabia. I think also <clears throat> you make the point. Clearly, the Iranians have been the primary you know provider of arms, training, support to the Houthis. Um, if in this, in fact, were to be curtailed, or you know possibly even eliminated, you know, as you say, we don't know what the Iranians are going to do. The Houthis may not be all in on, the, they might decide, okay, you know, that's fine. We, you know, we started this without you. We'll continue it without you. Um, and, and at that point, uh, you know, it, I'm not sure what happens, but, you know, I'm not, you know, Houthis weren't at the table, so it would be interesting how they respond. And the Houthis have their own calculus. One of the dangers is it's a one-way ratchet. 
and the Iranians can ratchet the Houthis up, but it's harder to ratchet them down. One thing that the number of people have told me is, look, the Houthis are used to living in places with no electricity, no plumbing, hanging out, you know, in the mountains and fighting. It takes longer to affect their calculus if they are used to making do with not very much. So where the Houthis are, what the Saudis are willing to do with the Houthis, uh, I suspect that if this is all going to get resolved, it's partly going to be about cutting off support from Iran, but also the Saudis are probably going to have to bite the bullet and put some money in that'll go to the Houthis. What the terms of that are, what the Houthis will agree to, who's going to have more patience on that, what's the humanitarian consequence going to be. I think over the next several months, that's going to be a, a lot of hard decisions. I, I think, you know, in many ways, the Saudis, I think, did some really expert diplomacy for the last week, but they're going to have to step up the game. The choices, the diplomatic choices are going to have to make over the next year are much harder than the diplomatic choices they've made. They're putting themselves on the, you know, in the spotlight on a lot of these issues in a way that for all the, the dissatisfaction they had with the previous position, they weren't really in the spotlight. And I think their decisions, whether it's going to be on Syria, whether it's going to be on Lebanon, whether it's going to be on, on Iraq and Yemen, how they're going to manipulate their Iran relationship, the U.S. relationship, I think those things are going to be really hard. And China doesn't really help you with any of those things. Well, and you, you that's a very interesting comparison, because it, it seems to me that the Saudis made a very conscious choice uh, that the maximum pressure applied by the previous administration, in particular, and maintained by this administration, isn't in their fully in their interests. I mean, I think one of the the it seems to me one of the major motivations in in establishing diplomatic relations with Iran and and getting more proper channels and communication was that they don't want to be you know collateral damage if Israel strikes Iran. And this is a, this is one way to possibly insulate them from blowback, because they see that the JCPOA is not, you know, unlikely to be renewed. They see the 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 rhetoric and the escalating you know dialogue between the Israelis and Iran. You know, obviously Israelis have said you know we, we'll we'll strike if we need. Um, so again, we talked about this earlier, John. You know, it's you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is you know first and foremost protecting this Vision 2030 project. Their you know their remake, the re-envisioning of their economy, their society, and all that. And they recognize instability as the major major uh, danger to that. This makes a lot of sense. It seems to me. Uh, and it seems to be a more palatable and more successful possible, a more promising road than the maximum pressure approach that has has prevailed over the last six years. Would you Would you agree with that? Um, I th I think the problem with maximum pressure is it assumed the Iranians would buckle under, and I think it's hard for the Iranians. To buckle under. I mean, it's just it, it, uh, when I've spoken to Iran, I've been speaking to Iranians for a long time. Uh, I just don't think uh, 
that that kind of steady pressure against the government is going to topple the government. I don't think it's going to make the government fold. I think it ends up meaning you don't have any tools to do anything. Uh, I think there's sometimes certainly when you do need to pressure the Iranian government, and certainly everybody I know in the U.S. government has, has recounted any number of incidents where the U.S. has put acute pressure on the Iranians, the Iranians have backed off. So I think what you have to do is you have to have some flexibility. The biggest mistake, from my perspective, is if the Iranians feel that there is no pattern of behavior that results in a different American attitude toward Iran, because then there are no incentives for the Iranians to behave differently. But at the same time, I think the Iranians have gotten themselves into a space where they're so convinced of American hostility that if the American, if they are sort of resisting and behaving poorly and the Americans squeeze them more, they say, aha, it reinforces how hostile the Americans are. And if they, they behave poorly and they resist and the Americans lighten up, they say, aha, our resistance is working. We should behave even more poorly. And then the Americans will give us more. And the Iranians have gotten themselves into a loop where they can't imagine changing their behavior. And I think that the American sanctions policy has, has gotten us into this space where the Iranians really do feel that there's no alternative. And it might be that the Saudis, by talking about investment, I don't know exactly what's been talked about, that, that the Iranians may feel that there are different outcomes available. Israel, you know, right now has its hands pretty full with their own domestic issues. But I would also point out that Iran is one of the few unifying issues in a very divided Israel, which is divided over the role of religion, it's divided over the economy, it's divided over right-wing, left-wing. Palestinian issue is a deeply divided issue, deeply dividing issue in Israel. But there is this sense that the Iranian threat is very real. And I think there is a, a worry in the region that Israel may, not only for strategic reasons, for political reasons, might try to increase tensions with Iran, might try to get the US to act against Iran for Israeli political reasons, and they'll be left holding the bag. At the same time, I think the Iranians, like other Gulf Arabs, wanna use ex exploring I'm sorry, the, the Saudis, like other Gulf Arabs, want to use exploring a relationship with Israel, having some sort of security dialogue with the Israelis to send a message to the Iranians that they have other alternatives. You know, so, so it all feels like, a, it, it feels like Saudi Arabia has very much gotten into balancing mode. There are, there are absolutely contradictions, but diplomacy is about contradictions. And it feels like, like we're in what may be, as we look back, this may be a sort of golden age of Saudi diplomacy because they're gonna have to navigate some very difficult contradictions over the next year. You talked a little bit about Israel and, and it's sort of the talking heads on, and this is Israel's the big loser, um, you know, because, you know, uh, issues, you know, they, you know, the Saudi Arabia being, you know, cooperative and communicative with Iran somehow, you know, changes their dynamic. But I think you you phrased it nicely. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. 
the commentary from the U.S. administration is this is great. You know, we had we were apprised of these things by the Saudis that it was ongoing. We we're happy to see you know anything that helps uh, deconflict the area, and and we're really delighted that uh, you know, countries in the region are talking to each other. That's the official line. Oh yeah, it puts a little more of a positive spin than I've seen. I think they're skeptical how much the Chinese a have contributed to this, and b what the result of the Chinese effort would be. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of the people in the Biden administration and the Obama administration, the Obama administration's view was that the Gulf had to come to its own equilibrium, which was not dependent on the United States being at the beck and call of all the Gulf Arab states. So you could see this as the, the realization of a transition in the region where the United States uh, isn't at the beck and call of all the states in the region. Again, I, it, it feels to me like we are in uh, a, a period of transition, a period of balancing. There will be a lot of tensions in the, in the months to come. Uh, but I think that, that as I say, that the, there's a sense of Saudi agency. I think the Emiratis have been really interested in exploring a different kind of relationship with Iran now. One of the, the big question marks is where does Iran go with a transition? The, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei is reportedly sick. He's certainly 83. Uh, are you going to have a transition to Iran and are you going to have a transition to something else going forward? And how should the Gulf states prepare for that. So it feels to me like there's there's a moment of, of, of real movement here. The other thing going on uh, is I think there is an increasing consensus that with the energy transition, the world is going to be more reliant on Gulf oil before it's less reliant on Gulf oil. And all of these transitions may be happening at a time when the world is actually more focused on the Gulf than it's been. And so that's another sort of interesting aspect of all this diplomacy is, is it feels to me like, like there's going to be an increasing need to understand what's going on, an increasing possibility of things going off the rails, but also an increasing possibility of getting to a place where these things are managed better, which doesn't involve the United States sending 100,000 troops, which I think all of us think is, is you know, much less likely now than it was 20 years ago. It's going to be a very interesting first week for Michael Ratney, the uh, new ambassador to Saudi Arabia from the United States, was approved by the Senate. John, can I, if I should, just can jump in here and actually connect it back to the first question that Richard asked, if that's okay. Um, yeah. China, we talked a little bit about their enforcement power. Um, I mean, they are the sort of archetype of non-interference power. I mean, they're really going to be using soft power, economic power to enforce this. Um, in your view, is that really going to be enough to sort of, I mean, solve any of these problems that these little flare ups that might come up? I mean, do you see this working out? You know, I when I worked on Capitol Hill, we had a, an international law professor who was doing a fellowship in our office. And he said that international law is a little bit like speed limits on the roads. Everybody doesn't obey them, all of them, 
but not having them, people would obey a lot, would, would behave a lot differently than, than at least having some guidance. Um, I don't think this is going to solve the problems of Iranian behavior. The, the problem that the Iranians feel that the rules don't apply to us because we're weaker, so we have to use all these asymmetrical tools that we've built over the last 40 some odd years. Um, but I think that the Chinese diplomacy, the sense of agency among Middle Eastern states, the possibility that they'll offer some inducements to the Iranians, I think creates a certain possibility of shifting some Iranian behavior. Whether it will be enough, I don't know. How it will be coordinated with the United States, which might be pursuing another policy, I don't know. Uh, and how this would survive transitions, especially have a transition in Iran, I don't know. But it, it certainly seems that all of this means there are opportunities that weren't there um, a year ago, even six months ago. And I think that creates opportunities for the United States to change what it does. It creates opportunities for, for China. I'm not worried about China pushing the U.S. out. I think it creates opportunities for China to behave in a different way. To me, it mostly creates opportunities for Gulf Arab states to change their relationship with the United States and frankly, have a much healthier relationship that is not so much of we pick up the phone and, and we expect uh, planes in the air, and but we're also going to engage economically uh, with, with the Iranians. So I think we're going to a better place, um, but as I say, it's gonna take a lot of diplomatic work to, to get there. John is host of the Unrivaled podcast by CSIS called Babel Translating the Middle East. Really, just please subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast. There's a little plus at the top of Apple Podcasts. Just hit that. You will thank us later, hopefully, uh, in the comment <laughs> section of our podcast. John, Center for, Center for Strategic and International Studies, thank you so much for joining us today and providing your insights. Just fascinating discussion. Lucian, thanks so much, Richard. Great to see you again. Wonderful. Go, uh, go Tigers. Richard, that was our conversation with Dr. John Alterman. He's just so brilliant and it's really awesome to engage with him. Just love this guy. So he's, he's been on the show several times now. And every time I ask him, I'm a little anxious because I really do respect his take on things. And I think it's very informed. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'd be like, going, I hope he says yes. I hope mm -hmm. he says, and of course he's, he's, he's a good friend and we're joking about all sorts of things, by the way, you know, he was, as he, you know, he very happy that Princeton has done well and got to the sweet 16 in the, in March madness. I would add just since we, uh, we, uh, captured this and recorded this discussion with John, which is excellent. He uh, published a really good article, uh, at, at the center for strategic international studies website csis called saudi arabia steps out and it i would recommend it i would please listen to this conversation we have with john because he goes he talks about a lot of the same things uh but it's a very good article and and you know what we're trying to do here with our our a range of guests with you know fahad nazar and and john alterman and uh dr abdulaziz al-gashayan is cut through all the static because there's a lot of talking heads saying a lot of silly things Mm -hmm. uninformed things and try and get to the to the heart of the problem heart of the issue and, and and really you know expand on it and illuminate a little bit uh of it and just you know so it's 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 assessed properly and responsibly in an informed way 
Yeah, Richard, as you know, we have a portion of our program of our show we do every week, almost every week, I should say, called Yella. And that's where we sort of provide some hot takes on some news issues. But it's been about a week since the Saudi Iran deal. And what we want to provide with this panel of experts is sort of nice and cold takes. You know, no no quick hits, but some sort of thoughtful analysis. Um, and I think we got to that. I think it's very safe to say we got to that with these three guests. Absolutely. Just fantastic. And now let's move on to our third guest, Dr. Aziz Al-Gashayan, joining us from Riyadh. He's just uh, very focused on the Saudi-Israeli relationship, but also the region in general. He provides another Saudi viewpoint in this conversation. He's fantastic. Joining us now on the 966, Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Gashayan, Saudi researcher and writer who joins us from Riyadh. Dr. Aziz was our guest for episode 70 of the 966. We talked about his work and research on Saudi-Israeli relations and foreign policy dynamics in the region. Probably the quickest turnaround in our 966 history in terms of welcoming a guest back so quickly. But it's our honor. Dr. Abdulaziz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. And I didn't realize I was uh, one of the quickest turnaround uh, guests. So I'm I'm the honored one. I'm the, I'm the honored one. <laughs> thank you so much for this. I mean, it's such a, I've, if I could, if I could just have it in a frame somehow, and I'll make sure I'll. <laughs> you get, you I'll, got I'll, it. I'll, no problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doctor uh, Doctor Blusies, what what should we make of this agreement? Well, I I mean uh, I think as we mentioned. Uh, it was indeed significant, and I think it was very. Um, it was a, a significant development, but I think the cooperation and the fact that it was a um, it was the fact that they actually agreed on something official. In my opinion, in my estimation, wasn't uh, overly surprising. I think if people looked at the Jidda summit and the rhetoric from the Jidda summit, is that it was clear that the Saudi elite, the ruling elite there, they kind of made their position clear. Um, which is that it's really extending the hand, their hand to Iran. And I think it was also extending a the Saudi hand, but also with a with a joint uh Arab bloc, a unified Arab hand, you know, um, especially with the GCC plus. So for, for the viewers, that means Iraq, uh, Egypt, and Jordan. So that gave them a, a, a position to really approach Iran um, and extend the hand. So, but I think what was maybe surprising, to be honest, was the fact that it jumped straight to normalization of relations and resuming of uh, diplomatic ties. I think that was the thing that made people say, that made people think, wow, okay, this is, we know, I personally expected steps a bit uh, less than that, but, um, you know, as as we said, uh, there's never a dull moment in, in in the Middle East. Well, so so that this is an interesting twist because you know Saudi Arabia and Iran have have uh, been engaging since 2021 under the auspices of Iraq and Oman. <clears throat> five five sort of meetings where they got together, talked about their issues, and 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 just for again for the viewers and you. Aziz, you can you can you have more information on this, but you know Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, severed diplomatic relations in 2016, um, yeah. so it's been seven years. So, but the conversation has been going on, and there's mm-hmm. been interest. Uh, yet, you know, in a span of four days, essentially, when uh, you have a you know Iranian representative and, and a Saudi representative in China, you know, from from March six to ten. 
the decision was made. So it wasn't done under the auspices of Iraq or Oman. It was done under the auspices of China. So mm. uh, what's the what's the meaning of this? Is this does this have extra impact? Um, was there a sense that doing it with China was more uh, was a, a better political choice for both parties than doing it with Iraq or Oman? It's you know it's really the, the the China angle here is very interesting for me I think before we get to China so the groundwork with with Iraq and Oman was already was already done the heavy lifting was already done through their part in my opinion I mean they were the ones that really helped facilitate the the understandings and of course generate the will that meant that you know they were both facilitating that 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 Saudi Iranian will that was taking place. Um, when it came to, I mean, the China angle is also very interesting because there's a lot of a lot of um, parallels here uh, and a lot of overlapping alignments. Uh, so, South China is Saudi's biggest trade partner. China is also the actor that could really uh, use any significant leverage uh, on uh, Iran. So here you have this situation where it really made a lot of sense for uh, Saudi, Iran, and and China to you know for China to have this to facilitate this this proper uh, this agreement. Uh, and I think not too long ago in the Jeddah, not Jeddah, the Riyadh China summit, a few a few months ago in December. Uh, Saudi was happy that it that China uttered those those statements regarding uh, Iran that you know they they were basically they were blaming them for some of the, the 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 instability in the region and I think now for for me that made Saudi realize okay now people understand our grievances with Iran now you know the international landscape are more appreciative of this notion of the dynamics that we have. Now let's let's start and begin this kind of cooperation. Now let's kind of address our problems on that on that landscape, on that foundation, and and also what's I think more meaningful here um, is the international relations of the Middle East. The, the dynamics of the international relations of the Middle East is changing. It's also being you know more actors are playing a role. China is is now of course still the biggest economic foreign actor but now it's having a diplomatic uh, portfolio well in the region uh, that uh, that one thing it, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there and that that's good stuff disease uh you know the the she visit to to saudi arabia made the saudis happy made the iranians very unhappy so that visit to Saudi was in December. The, the Iranians were almost immediately in China in February complaining. Um, but that leads to exactly what you're saying is uh, China is positioned here. It has significant economic relationships with both countries. Um, it can play a mediating role. It can play maybe a, a you know, a, a supervisory role. The big question here is if and will it? Mm. And, I, and I say that because there's coming out of it, a lot of the conversation was, okay, this is great for Saudi Arabia because, it, you know, uh, 
hopefully Iran will stop meddling in 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 uh, Yemen. And Iran, as we know, is you know the leading provider of training, material, arms, uh, support to the Houthis in Yemen. Is this is this is that expectation too too strong? Is it is it too ambitious? And if it if it doesn't happen, what does China do? Do they do anything? Well, I I, I mean I think in your introduction you mentioned that Saudi Arabia and Iran had agreements previous agreements, especially the two thousand and one agreement, uh, and I think it was June two thousand and one where they made that security agreement. So firstly. The intent to cooperate was there. The precedent of cooperation was there. But why wasn't it long? Where, where was the longevity in that? You know, why didn't that last? And I think because these were agreements, they weren't actions. Um, I think now the, the 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 core theme or the main glue of the Saudi-Iranian relationship that will give it that longevity, hopefully, in this time, is the economic actor. or the economic factor. For me, I think what's really interesting here, what I also heard from the Jiddah summit in in July, I think it was July, right? July, 2022. um, It was that there was a theme of regional integration and economic regional integration. And that's what really, you know, the crown prince, uh, MBS was, is, you know, is is reminding the, the audience of constantly, you know, he's always reminding people of a thriving region, not a thriving Saudi Arabia. So with that, is that, okay, well, okay, well, where can Iran play a role here? Uh, and this is something even this, the, the Jordanian king said, Jordanian King Abdullah said, it's like, well, we have these projects. And if I was Iran, I would ask, where do I fit within these projects? So I think the thing that's going to give it that longevity um, and I think what makes this different than any other rapprochement before was the fact that, listen, there are economic incentives here. And even uh, the the um, Minister of Finance, Al-Jad'an, said, uh, we, we, we don't see any reason why not, why we can't invest in Iran immediately. Uh, there's a lot of potential there. So clearly you could see the economic angle into this and in, in that basically, listen, if, if Saudi wants or if Iran wants to uh, meddle and, and destabilize and all these things that basically are attributed to its regional activity, then it's really going to go against itself because that means the, the economies here and, and, and are going to be slightly uh, affected by each other a lot more. So this is where I think the... This is why this approach is a lot newer, and I think we'll give it a lot more longevity in the long run. I, it's interesting. If you look at, at the crown prince and look at Saudi foreign policy over the last 18 months, and this includes all the way going back to the, you know, the resolution of the dispute with Qatar and, and um, uh, renewed relations with Turkey, even the growing relations and, and trade and new agreements with Iraq, which, you know, that's been kind of a cold, it hadn't been a warm relationship, even though that's a, you know, that's an important partner and, and an immediate neighbor. I would even include the OPEC plus meeting of October. Yeah. Um, in that, it's clear from what Saudi foreign policy has been over the last 18 months, clear to me anyway, is that they are doing everything possible to preserve the 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 
the chances of vision, the Vision 2030 project to succeed. Yeah. Trying to deconflict the region as, as much as possible. And there's a little bit of, in this, in this, you take this agreement, China oversees, supervises it, all right, that's fine. A lot of people in the U.S. You know, said that's a big deal, but the fact is the U.S. couldn't make this agreement. We don't have a relationship with Iran. So this is in the best interest of Saudi Arabia. Clearly, it was in the interest of Iran. You heard the, the, the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, talking about, look, we're too isolated. Go mm -hmm. fix things to his people. We need to, we, we're just completely isolated, and it's not helping us. We need to do better with this. So they had motivation on two parties. You had a, a governing body, you know, essentially China. There's another angle here, and, and let's talk about the, the the players who weren't immediately involved. Let's talk about the U.S. Mm. How should the, the U.S. Uh, the you know the the public line is this is great, mm. you know you know Saudis kept a surprise. This is important. We want that. We want the players in the region talking to each other. We want things deconflicted. Um, is that the, is that the, is it, can we take that as a, you know, the, the assessment of the U.S. position on this and leave it at that, or is there more? No, I think, I mean, you mentioned a very interesting thing, because the fact that we keep on, or the, the region, uh, especially when it comes to China or Russia, seems to be, uh, or relations with China or Russia seem to always instigate um reports about this is coming at the cost of the united states or relations with the west or that this is a pivot toward away from the united states and i think this this is very zero sum uh in my opinion this is what's taking place is that okay no this is not coming at the expense of the saudi's relations or iranian relations or regional relations with the united states <clears throat> excuse me it it really addresses something or it speaks to the theme that, you know, what you mentioned is that the United States couldn't do this. Um, and, and it just wasn't, in, it wasn't better positioned to do this. And China was better positioned to facil facilitate this. It was a sticky subject, by the way. I mean, it, it, it wasn't that the, the, it, the deal was done and China came at the end. Um, there's still, there's a, there's a very good report about this that I read about from Anna Jacobs and, and Dina uh, Esperandi, I think, I hope I got her name right, um, from Crisis crisis Group. Um, and they, they write that, okay, there were actually sticking points um, there, and Chinese, uh, the Chinese government and officials really helped facilitate that. Now, okay, don't think the U.S. was in better position to do this, especially if there was a lot more of an economic aspect to this. Um, you know, the U.S., with its position does not have the leverage probably that Saudi would have required uh, or thought of um, to, to, to help get it over that uh, over the hump or over the will oh, I'm sorry what the hell am I talking about over over the, over the over the barrier over the hump there you go there you go um, so but what does this mean for Saudi American relations uh, I don't think this comes at the cost of it I think even Hussein Ibish mentioned this also in in his um in his work recently uh when he when he wrote about the arab china summit and that this relationship that's taking place between saudi arabia and china uh is carefully managed and it's also being carefully perceived by the us and it's that it's not at the cost of their relationship so i think here saudi's doing a very good job at balancing it's uh, relations with for, foreign 
with, with, with superpowers. So in other words, I could say Saudi's doing a, a good job at balancing its superpower policies. Uh, and I think, you know, this is what we're start we're starting to see this also. We're starting to see a more, you know, uh, a more um, semi-traditional Saudi-like, uh, you know, where they're, 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 they're vague. Sometimes there are sometimes that, you know, the statements are uh, not as explicit as it used to be. Sometimes, uh, you know, there is this certain ambiguity that uh, was was very that gave it, uh, you know, some kind of uh, gave it uh, a, a little bit of robustness to to circumnavigate uh, international and uh, international turbulence. So, you know, so I think w- they're they're proving that they're really managing this relationship um uh, very well but they're still unfortunately turbulence i think with the united states now this comes against the backdrop of already existing turbulence between saudi arabia and the united states but there's something else that i really wanted to mention about um which is there's another theme here uh, not just china playing a di- you know diplomatic role and having a diplomatic portfolio but also uh we're starting to see a, a regional agency in, in the international in the international arena that the Middle East is gaining agency, that the Middle East is not being overly influenced uh, or uh, affected by what's taking place out, you know, what's taking place on the on the international landscape. Um, so you you actually mentioned that when about the OPEC plus. This was something. You know, the, 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 this kind of really reminded me of this. And it also reminded me that, you know, th- that these actors, Oman, Iraq, were able to do some heavy lifting and 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 the third party negotiations that facilitated, you know, two heavyweights in the region. So we're starting to see a region that's taken, taking responsibility um, uh, for its own, its own uh, actions and in, in healing, finding ways to heal and repair its own relations. It's interesting. Well, it's very apparently great minds think alike because we had a conversation with Dr. John Alterman, who we have tremendous yes. respect for. He's the Center for Strategic International Studies. And he used that term as well, agency. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um and I couldn't agree more. And I would I might even might even um you know take a point with you in when you said, you know, it's it's being, you know, the 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 policy is it's the the policy since literally, and and I and I take the invasion of of Ukraine and uh, Russia the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, as sort of a uh, the onset of clarity in terms of exactly this agency, and I, by that I mean because you know as a result of that you know that you know rallying of the EU, NATO, and U, U.S. against this, and and you know having wanting the rest of the world to come along, <clears throat> everyone put their cards on the table. And Saudi Arabia said, look, we are masters of our future. We are not your little brother. We will maintain relationships with China. We will maintain relationships with Russia. It, it doesn't mean we don't want a relationship with you. And, and you know, I, you know, if you were to read the tea leaves, you might even conclude we really prefer a relationship with you yeah. if you can come through on these key issues. But to me, there's been more clarity in the relationship in the last six months, eight months, than there have been in the previous 20 years. If you ask me by that, I, you know, I, I just think people are really saying what they feel and 
and, and meaning what they say. Yeah. And and I don't think that's been characteristic so much of a relationship in the past. I think people have been, you know, the Saudis have been unhappy with it. Americans have been unhappy with it. You know, they've been, they've, they've worked and the, and the key elements have been there. But I, I absolutely think agency is a proper term and an appropriate term for what's going on in the region. <clears throat> and I, I, I believe, you know, beginning with that, um, Alula summit, I think it was uh, January, 2021. Uh, you know, it, it, it really appears that, you know, the, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has said, I am, I'm not, I'm not back on my heels anymore. Post, uh, Khashoggi, uh, you know, that's that for me, I'm moving past that. I'm, I'm going to be a regional leader and my vision for this area is, is not as a regional head, but as a global agent. You know, sort of the axis. I think you see Saudi Arabia as an axis of you know Europe, Asia, Africa, and um, I, to me, it's you know the, the Saudis it has been more clear these last, as I said, six to eight months than it has been previously. No, I, 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 I would. Sorry, sorry, sorry go ahead. No, no. After you, um, go on. we talked when we last had you on. We were talking about the 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 prospects of normalization with Israel. And of course, the talking heads come out of this. And, you know, and I think you put your finger on it really nicely, you know, talking heads for the U.S., you know, a lot of them were zero sum. Well, if, if, the, if the Chinese, you know, get good PR out of this, then we, it must be bad for us. You know, so that's how they were looking at it. Smarter people were like Hussein Ibish, who you referenced, you know, we're looking at it in a more nuanced view. Talking heads, you know, on this say, oh, oh OK, this, you know, Israel's prospects uh, for normalization are now off the table. Um, because obviously, you know, if, if, if Saudi Arabia is, is coordinating, have diplomatic relations, more, more friendly relations with their arch enemy, Israel's arch enemy, Iran, then, you know, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has changed. Yeah. What's your take on this? Well, I, I think, you know, firstly, I really agree with a lot of what you said, and, and I wanted to expand upon this before I go to the Israeli part, because that's, that's very, very interesting. When it comes to, well, John Alterman, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, also, and he's a fantastic guy, to be honest. Um, so he he's someone I appreciate. He's, he's a real good guy. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> you know, it, for me, when it comes, I just want to tr try to trace back how old, or uh, try to trace back how, you know, how uh, how old this this regionalization that, that the Crown Prince was talking about. You know, it was actually in Davos and the Desert in 2018. When he mentioned, he's like, listen, I I want to see this a prosperous region. This is my personal uh, fight. This is my personal battle. Uh, and I see, I want everyone to be prosperous in the region. And this is where I think the beginning of this rapprochement began or the seeds of the rapprochement began because he said, even with Qatar, despite our problems with them, we still want them to be successful and we still want them to be thriving. So for me, that really sent a message of saying, wow, there is there is a, a, a real change in perception and intention from the Saudi ruling elite here. And that, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're expanding upon this. And I think with the whole aspect of, um, yeah, regionalization. So and and and, and agency, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So and he said, okay, we're 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 going to try to be the new haven of of economy of investment, etc. So and that can't happen unless you know we're all getting along. And speaking of getting along, um, or the lack of, um, 
with the situation with Israel. <laughs> I mean, again, this is this is very similar to what the U.S. Uh, China angle is regarding Saudi uh, normalization with with Iran, as in some people viewed this at the cost of uh, the, the 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 Saudi Iranian normalization was viewed at the cost of the United States at Saudi's relations with the United States, and of course we're arguing here that this is this is too simplistic, and I think also with the prospect of normalization with Saudi Arabia and Israel what was pushing for that normalization in our last episode that we kind of mentioned this what was pushing for that normalization wasn't iran you know it wasn't a, a commonality of it, the threat perception of iran it was really the economy it was also the fact that they could they could help each other with this regionalization taking place but of course the dynamics are very different saudi you know the saudi perception with 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 israel is is that and it made itself clear you know, it made itself clear, and especially now, given the, the the loonies that are in the government in 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 Israel, which, by the way, I mean, it's creating a lot of it's creating a lot of silver lining here because it's showing how so many people are against you know within Israel are against these these racist sentiments and against this you know this um, and they're pro Arab, they're pro human rights, they're pro you know all these things. So there's a lot of there's a lot to take away from that constructively, but I think what happened, and if I want to add my own twist to this, Saudi now, the, the the aspect of regional integration of Iran is something that Saudi is going to have to take into account when it looks at Israel also. Because in my opinion, the, what I really can gain from the Jiddah summit in 2022 in the summer of 2022, was that it seemed to me that it preferred a rapprochement with Iran than it did with Israel. That the security concern was better addressed with Iran than it is with Israel. Because with Israel, things can be, it, 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 there's, things could be gained, things could be understood in many different avenues. When it comes to Iran, the security issue is far greater for Saudi Arabia. So it's a far more of a priority. Now, when it comes to normalization, I don't think Saudi, if the conditions that the Saudis met, and I think recently there was a New York Times piece, um, I, I don't know if you guys read uh, about uh, the, the Saudis' price for normalization, when there was concessions, and I think we also talked about this before, uh, in our in our last meeting about the shifting of burden of concessions that apparently it's still there but what's even more uh on top of that was the Palestinian issue too that there has to be some sort of um some sort of um concession Israeli concession towards the the the, the Palestinian issue so you know it, it, it's becoming more complex uh, but at the same time it's not uh, overly attached. So I don't think, I mean, so many people view it, think it's attached. Uh, Yair Lapid kind of immediately criticized the government and said, ah, oh, there you go. You know, it was because of this government, you know, they pushed Saudi Arabia to the Iranians, our arch enemy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this just, this is part of the politicization that's taking place that, that, that's that been going on anyway. So um, too many people are attaching the whole Israel-Iran 
Saudi Arabia triangle too much. And it's not, it's not overly attached, but now I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's influencing each other a little bit. I agree. And, and, uh, Lucia and I see it all the time. And I think it's something we talked about when we had you on the show. Um, a lot of the, the narrative, quote unquote narrative, a lot of the, you know, compulsion for normalization is being driven by pro-Israeli voices. You know, they, they, they'd they like to see it. Of course, they'd like to see it. Um, and to your point, I, I agree 100 percent The you know, for Saudi Arabia. Happy. Happy to to have a relationship with Israel, that means there's uh, technological commerce interaction, the things that help, again, the Vision 2030 project. Normalization is somewhat down the road, if it's in anything at all. And I will say that conversation with you, I thought was brilliant. It was really educational to me because that was when it became clear was you made the very clear point. It says, look, the onus, interestingly enough, you know, we think about if normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, you know, well, of course, there's going to be serious concessions on the occupied territories, you know, Palestinians, maybe East Jerusalem, these sorts of things. That's the sort of the old school. But you made a very good point. And it, as I said, it was an education needs. No, no. The onus is going to be on, on the U.S., Hmm. to fulfill these asked, you know, that Saudi Arabia has. And and just for clarity, that New York Times article, it was March 11th. Uh, it's worth reading. Saudi Arabia offers its price to normalize relations with Israel. Yeah. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a researcher they referenced in there, too. Um, it's written by Michael Crowley, Vivian Nareem, and Patrick yeah. Kingsley. Yeah. Um, but you I have guess what they, what's that? You have it in front of you? I do. They got a great yeah. quote in there from somebody. I'm trying to think who they got the quote in there well, from. I, I, I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to. Uh, are you, this it, this yes, is Doctor C. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's quoted in it. <laughs> well, let's let's. I'm, I'll read the what the ask is. And I want you to read the quote. All right. Sure. And then we then we <laughs> the and then we applaud. All right. We should out. You know, we need better graphics on the night sixes. We need we need fireworks going off yeah, and these yeah, sorts yeah, of things. Yeah. All right. So uh, the. the 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 ask quote unquote is yeah. security guarantees from the United States help with developing a civilian nuclear program fewer restrictions on U.S. arms sales. Uh, so those are things obviously for Saudi Arabia, you know, are very important to its uh, national defense and security, and 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 it also for Saudi Arabia removes the ambiguity of what is the U.S. commitment, which is a major concern. Um, so and but the brilliant quote that Lucian is now going to read is. Wait, I thought we were going to make Dr. Aziz read it. So we have the original oh, voiceover no, of it. Yeah, no, I, I think this is an homage to Dr. Aziz. I, I don't have like, it. In, I don't actually have it up in front no, of me. So. I, I, hold on, hold <laughs> if on you give a me a second, I can do it. But I was thinking we oh, could have the it. voice itself. <laughs> I got it. Um, Richard, I think we may just need you to read it for yeah. given expediency. The, uh, so given, 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 given the difficult relationship, the Saudi offer could be interpreted as, quote, a rhetorical move, unquote, said Abdulaziz Agashayan, a Saudi researcher who studies this country's policy towards Israel. The goal might be to put Mr. Biden in an awkward position of refusing to deliver an agreement that Israel badly wants, uh, an outcome that could disappoint Jewish American groups with political clout. Uh, Mr. Doctor, should be Dr. Algershayan, said it was unlikely that Saudi officials would actually facilitate a major foreign policy for victory for Mr. Biden while he was still president, given their grievances with his administration. Quote, 
The Saudi ruling elite do not want Biden to be the American president to take credit for Saudi-Israeli normalization, but they don't mind Biden taking the blame for its absence, he said, unquote. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah. You know what's interesting? Yeah. You know how these things, this is funny, all these things, these, this is you know, this is above my pay grade, I don't know. Uh, I'm not in a room with, with you know, Saudi policymakers at the very highest level. Um, Neither am I, but it doesn't stop me. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't stop the ninth success, though. So, so you say. <laughs> no, there, yeah, yeah. There, there, no, there was a discussion recently, and and you know how these things, common themes, uh, you know, on the uh, the releasing of Iranian hostage, U.S. hostage, American yeah, yeah. hostages held by Iran, seventy nine, and and the and the basically the sense in the Iranian leadership that we will not release these to President Carter. Yeah. He doesn't get that win. Yeah. Incoming President Reagan gets that wing and maybe we get some, get something out of it. You know, I'm just saying it, there's always deeper, deeper flows to all of this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, on that Israeli relationship, and I think you've talked about it, and I think we all agree that, you know, that the, the pressure, the supposed inevitability of normalization is usually from pro-Israeli groups mm. or voices. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to this agreement. Fascinating stuff. What's the likelihood that what's the likelihood that the Iranians abide by? It's it's a good it's going to be in my opinion uh, I think you will see something of a lot of patience by Saudi Arabia. And the reason being is because it goes back to this question of agency again. Because one of the things that uh, we need not overlook are the proxies that Iran supports. Now, those proxies, they're like sort of, I would consider them almost like genie bottles. So you once you open them, okay, I'm not sure you could put it back, put it back in the bottle again. So these things, you know, because they do have their grievances too, they all they also have their own agency uh it, as well. So the fact, and they were going to shed light on that. They're also very proud to show that they're not, you know, Iranian extensions of Iran. They're actually you know, their own political entities, their own kind of, uh, they have their own identity and their own agenda, and they don't speak to anybody uh, or they don't answer to anybody. Of course, this is limited, um, you know. So, but it's going to be difficult to see how Iran manages that. And I think that's what Saudi, the Saudi perception will be or what the Saudi eyes will be. But they know it's going to be, it's not going to be that simple. Because once you open that kind of uh, open that door, it's not easy to close. So um, there was a saying that uh, King Fahad, when I think he was crown prince, said to Saddam Hussein before he invaded Iraq. He said, "Listen, Saddam, don't invade. I'm sorry, don't invade." When he invaded Iran, he said, "Listen, Saddam, don't invade." Okay, because the keys to the to war is in your hands to starting the war is in your hands but the keys to close it is not in your hands or the keys to stop it is not in your hands so it's the same thing with these proxies you could have the same principles that okay you could start them you could support them okay where are these weapons going to go now they're all going to stop you know they're individuals too so it's going to take a lot of negotiation and i think the saudis realize this therefore they normalize relations that they need to keep that channel of communication open and direct and still and, and build because I think they know that it's 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 a working progress. But I do I, I do feel somewhat optimistic because I think the region has had enough. 
And I think people have had enough. I think the entire region, and I think the Saudi ruling elite, as well as um, uh, other elites in the in the GCC, as well as Iran and others, have realized, okay, this is this is just not sustainable. You know, we need to be, we all have something in common, which is global turbulence. So we need to be, you know, working together. So I think that alongside the economic factor and the glue, that economic glue is going to give it that um, momentum, at least, you know, that safety net, at least to, to, to keep building these relations and, and, and really have that intention of solving these issues and having their own mechanisms. So I think, uh, again, it's, you know, they're taking responsibility and they're taking initiative. Which is, which is, you know, it's very, very good to see as a citizen of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's, I think that's a very important perspective, Aziz, that this yeah. is just a start. And like I said, you know, we have two months to, to figure out some details about just opening embassies and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's just, the, uh, you know, starting the conversation and see where it goes. I do think it's uh, in, key, in keeping with your uh description of agency and having had enough it's a rejection of the sort of trump administration maximum pressure on 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 iran as as a failed it, it has not achieved what what might have been hoped to achieve either in terms of um, you know the regime behavior or you know regime uh, being uh ousted um and that you know, let's take let's take take control of our our destiny here, and let's deconflict and try and move this along in something we think is more creative and and more has more potential. Yeah. Well, I I mean, with the whole, I think one of the reasons why I think this this is a good approach, in my opinion, is because that whole indeed you're right that that uh, maximum pressure campaign, for me, I I think it only entrenches the Iranian regime. Not not only it doesn't weaken it because they That's have their history own... shows exactly exactly I mean <laughs> it, it, it hasn't worked I mean it literally right. hasn't worked and and the IRGC and their history they're very mobile and flexible and multifaceted and that they adjusted to sanctions and and therefore these sanctions um, unlike for example Iraq with Saddam Hussein after the 1990s where they didn't kind of they didn't have the skill or the ability to adapt to these sanctions. Iranians, no, they, 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 the Iranian regime, I would say, uh, adopted to this too. You know, they adopted well, and and therefore, it's not, it wasn't a, a viable option. It, 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 as you said, history shows that it, they, they just, they just thrived. I mean, more and more literature comes out about the black market and the IRGC black market and the IRGC and how they control this and they control that and and they influence w black markets wouldn't have been there without the sanctions so you know it, it, this is another way of confronting the issue in a more open and diplomatic and honest way and i think in some ways it's it's you know there's a certain spirit here i think which is the most important thing is that this is coming after a phase of a lot of antagonism you know this is coming af after an era of uh, I would say an experimental phase in the Middle East where people wanted to meet head on and really wanted to impose the will of the other. And it realized that this is just too costly. This is just not really good for anybody. Uh, and in order for us to be a good, to, you know, to be a thriving region, we really need to to, to, to thrive here uh, and, and, and 
iron out these differences. But I think there's also another thing that's very important here, and that's the cultural aspects. And I think people are bringing in, factoring in the cultural aspects within this relationship too. And other tracks, by the way, that that supported this, that supported the commonality. I mean, I was in a, in a meeting recently, and I'll be honest, I couldn't believe how much Saudi Arabia and Iran actually already cooperated before the normalization. I mean, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of aspects that they agree on, that they work on, that, that, you know, but unfortunately, as you say, the narrative, the narrative is always designed to be antagonistic. And so, you know, it's a lot of us, what we're doing here and activists that are trying to, you know, show, Hey, we're, we're not in favor of nobody's, I won't say nobody's in favor of us, at least, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not really pro-conflict people, you know, we're not pre, pro, pro get them people. We're, you know, we're pro let's get together kind of. Uh, and so, and, it, and, it, and thankfully that kind of uh, energy it spilled over into the, the 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 political aspects and 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 let long may it continue hopefully there's a there's an important in in terms of saudi arabia and what it yeah. wants to see in terms of preserving the 2030 projects hmm. you know there, there's there's those that argue that maximum pressure was effective in terms of strangling funds for all the iranian proxies the non-state proxies actors it has in you know in iraq and syria and lebanon and palestine and yemen that's their argument <clears throat> those non-state proxies are in place uh because saudi i mean iran recognized it it had to it had to respond in an asymmetric manner mm. um i agree with you 100 percent what happens when you set these things up is you it's a genie and you open it up and it causes problems. And I don't know how they put the genie back in the bottle because every one of these local constituencies have local, you know, local issues and local priorities that, you know, they love Iranian support and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, they don't necessarily stop just because Iran wants to stop. My point is, is really in order for this relationship, this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran mm. to get its full run, mm. Iran and the U.S. have to reach some sort of accommodation mm. because so much of Iranian response is, is a perceived, you know, you know, attack by its neighbors, Israel and the U.S. And so many of these tools that they've established over these last 30, 40 years is in response to that. Mm. Obviously, they have baggage with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other things. But in a big picture, you know, It'd be, you know, if you have good relationships with Saudi Arabia, that's awesome and it had real benefits, but you're still in a war footing because you've got the U.S. and Israel. Mm. And so it's going to be interesting to see if, if there's any movement on that part, because I think that's the other thing to fall to really start easing the easing the region. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that. No, no, I agree completely. And not only that, I think, you know, this is why it's really I, I appreciate you guys because you guys bring really excellent. I mean, even my brother saw this uh, before the last clip and I'm like. Aziz, man, those those two guys—they're really, really awesome because they know how to ask really good questions and 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 they're really accurate and they're really good. So uh, obviously, you guys are getting a lot of fans here in Saudi. Um, but um, what your point really? Why is it really good? Because I think it speaks to one of the core issues that Iran had with Saudi, and it was that it viewed Saudi as part of the American camp, right? And I think what Saudi did was that it kind of removed itself from the American camp 
and I won't say put itself in this camp or other camp, but it it's no longer a core grievance, in my opinion. I think it addressed the core grievance that Iran had with Saudi, is that this is now part of you know a, 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 an organic aspect here that this isn't part of an American camp because when you speak to Iranians and I and I and I said this to them and I said one of the issues is that when you keep talking about Saudi or you keep talking about it, it's not about what you you say about Saudi it's what you don't say because you keep talking about the United States and it's occupying Saudi land and etc as if Saudis had no no option uh and 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 this is obviously very kind of um very insulting I would say you know but uh, I think <clears throat> I think it removed itself from that. Therefore, addressing one of the core issues that Iran perhaps had. But also, I think now it's part of the Iran-American aspect that it's, a, it's another theme where Saudi is not just an, an obstacle, but Saudi can be actually a facilitator to this too, because they have facilitated these things. In 1997, they, they, you know, it was by the. I mean, there was a there was a time where I think under the Trump, uh, Trump, um, but the Clinton administration. I think he would be very happy if I said that Clinton. Um, the Clinton administration, where I think they were very much, you know, uh, eager to to really use a, a heavy hand towards uh, Iran, but it was the Saudis that intervened that tried to co-opt them, that tried to, and they mediated something. So there is a new function that we could see now, uh, a more constructive role, and we're just going to, but it's not overly affected by it if it doesn't succeed. Now, Saudi will right. be affected by it. Yeah, and if you're a Saudi you know, leadership right now, you're saying, let the good times roll. We've had a great 2022, 2023. It's looking up as well. So let's keep it going. Um, Dr. Abilziz Al-Gashayan, Saudi researcher, uh, go-to quote for the New York Times as well, uh, does his research on Saudi-Israeli relations and foreign policy dynamics in the region. Dr. Abilaziz, thank you so much. We hope to keep this clip going of having you come about every 10 uh, guests or so because you're just so wonderful. Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. That's honestly, it's my pleasure. And and there was 10 guests this time. We could make it nine. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it went down. And, yep. And then you're just one of us. Two plus one. And, uh, and we'll just have a two plus one. Exactly. <laughs> Great Thanks to be so with much. you guys. Thank you guys so much. That was our conversation with Dr. Aziz Al-Gashayan. Just such a great guy, despite his fandom of the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> which uh, he makes sure to rub in our face every time we see him on Zoom or in person. So, uh, yeah, thank you to Dr. Aziz and Dr. John and Fahad for joining us on this really awesome special edition of the 966. Richard, well done, sir. Well, that was awesome. And when we first invited uh, Dr. Aziz, he was in Doha and he said, I can't do this because I don't have my sound, my, my cowboy sign to put in the background. <laughs> Let me get back to my office. So He's I like, but I do have my jersey. Sign. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he travels with his jersey. No, he's I uh, uh, really good. I love his perspective. He's, you know, he's, and, and you noticed, you, you mentioned his expertise. Clearly, he has he has insight and understanding. He's done his research beyond that relationship uh, only, you know, with Israel. And I, I know that's that's a given. But it was fun to have him talk about this from the Saudi perspective. And uh, I thought he added a real element here. Of the three, you know, we had a nice range of 
points of departure in assessing the the diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And I thought Aziz brought something very specific to the conversation, which was good. Yeah, not an earthquake in the region, Richard, but a perceptible tremor, certainly. Yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next two months and over the next year and so on. But it's a different world now and sort of that's why we wanted to do this uh, podcast in this format this week. We will be back next week with the normal, usual, full format with the special guests um, and our hot takes in the yellow session as well. So, But uh, Richard, good to see you again. Welcome back. And uh, we will see you next week. Always a pleasure, my friend. This is awesome. Indeed.